Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Randy Barnett digs into the fine print of the Declaration of Independence. Bartley Danielson discusses race, segregation, and public schooling. U.S. Senator Tim Kaine discusses reserving the right to make war for Congress. Jeff Myron makes a consequentialist case for liberty. And Johan Norberg discusses the rise of India. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In 1990, uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, along with the Cato Institute, produced a volume called NATO at 40. And uh, here we are at NATO at 66, I believe, here in 2015. So uh, just as a general question, I'm joined here by Christopher Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Doug Vandau, a senior fellow here at Cato. What do we get out of NATO? What do we spend? helping our NATO allies? I think the advocates of uh, the United States continuing in NATO would say that we get the support of NATO countries when we venture and other uh, venture abroad. So they would point most recently to the intervention in Afghanistan where a number of NATO countries did contribute um, various levels from troops to money. Uh, and they would say that that was a uh, a, a sign of NATO's continuing relevance. Um, I'm skeptical of that. We can talk about that in a minute. They would also say, I think, that um, th that we get uh, leverage and we get uh, uh, the influence that we might not otherwise have. And uh, again, I think that's a debatable point. And what does it cost us? This is probably the toughest question of all because, of course, the Pentagon doesn't budget by region. Uh, that's they, they are reluctant to do that. And so it is difficult to state clearly what the amount of the, you know, what, what portion of the U.S. defense budget is, is primarily dedicated to defending the European allies. But I think it's, it's not unreasonable to estimate, you know, 20 to 20 to 25 percent is a, is, a, is a good ballpark figure until somebody comes along with a, with a different one. I think the advocates of NATO would also make a general argument, which we hear very often, is the world is a dangerous place and that NATO is kind of has a protective role, even if we don't see the danger right now. Again, I'm also skeptical of this kind of an argument, but they look around the world and say, well, NATO was active in Libya or somewhere else. Therefore, you know, NATO can be helpful in meeting these kind of unplanned, unexpected contingencies in a dangerous world. Now, uh Within this building, NATO has been called a dangerous permanent alliance, which I believe none other than George Washington warned mm -hmm. us about. Yes. So, what I mean, what is what are the risks associated with uh, continuing on with the United States essentially propping up NATO? Well, I think the it's the permanent part that is most troubling. Not that there are occasional alliances. I don't think anyone would dispute that from time to time the United States has and should ally with different countries on common interests. The problem is that when you establish a permanent alliance, then the alliance becomes the end in itself, not merely a means to an end. Of course, the, what we're trying to achieve is security. Um, but in many respects, the, the alliance has, has, has become, you know, the, the reason, you know, the alliance is there because, because it's there. If we didn't have NATO, we would, we would create it, people would say. And, and, and I think it's hard to sustain. I'm reluctant to say that we, uh, that we could we could create this in the you know create this today given the conditions that existed back when NATO was created. And again, th this is the point that I really want to make: is that 
Had I been alive in 1949, I think it would have been perfectly plausible to create NATO. Uh, these countries were very were weak and they were broken by war. Um, but the problem is that we have allowed them to become overly dependent upon the United States over time as they be, as they became wealthy. Uh, and uh, and if we don't change course, then uh, we shouldn't expect them to change their behavior. I think Chris is absolutely right that the circumstances should dictate foreign policy. The Cold War was a unique set of circumstances protecting war-torn allies when you see the Soviet Union that seemed aggressive and dangerous made a lot of sense. But even at that time, Dwight Eisenhower warned about the danger of essentially creating disincentives for the Europeans to defend themselves, that a permanent garrison, that a permanent presence would basically discourage them. And he was quite right. That's really what has happened. And it really, I think we look today, the alliance has become an end, not the means. Back uh, you know, at the time of the Kosovo War, I remember Bill Kristol basically saying, if we don't get involved in the war, what do we have NATO for? My reaction is you have alliances to prevent war. You don't go to war to save alliances. If you've got to go to war to have a purpose for the alliance, it's probably a pretty stupid alliance. At the end of the Cold War, there were a lot of debates at that point of now what? This was the quintessential Cold War alliance in the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact are gone. Today, we see it kind of dragging us into war, say, in Libya. Why, why is America involved in Libya? Well, NATO partners want it in. Arguably, the U.S. did the same on Afghanistan. No European really wanted to be involved there. They came along because of the alliance in the U.S. So it looks to me like we've turned this around from the, the means to peace to suddenly becoming an end in itself. So this, uh, the alliance then, if, if, it, if I may say, seems to cajole, allow countries to cajole other NATO members into getting involved in things that they don't want to be involved in. That's right. Um, one of the ways to, to look at an alliance is as a, uh, I think it was uh, called a transmission belt to war, right? If, if an alliance works the way, some alliances work well as a deterrent, that the, the, the capabilities of the countries together are great enough to deter an attack by a larger rival. Uh, but it's also true that if, the, that if deterrence fails, you, have, you drag along a lot of other countries that might otherwise be, uh, stay outside, out of the war entirely. So. I, mean, I think that World War I demonstrated that danger, that you had two different sets of alliances that should have deterred each other. But once war happened, for a lot of different reasons, including both sides thought the other would, would basically back down, that once it happened, it dragged in the entire continent and eventually the United States, Japan, you know, around the world. And I think that's the real danger for us today. If you look at a, a question like Ukraine, it's a tragic situation, but is it really conceivable we'd want to go to war there? And what you've done is we've created an incentive for small countries in dangerous situations to want to join NATO to be protected by the United States, Georgia as well, contributed to American missions in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then says, well, why aren't we in NATO? We helped you out. Why don't you help us out? But that would really entail a very real risk of war. So for countries like Georgia, Ukraine, uh, we see that there, there is a, a concerted effort within the United States to add these countries to NATO possibly uh, some of the people advocating that actually want the United States to end up there, once again reasserting Article 5 of, of the NATO Charter, an attack on one is an attack on all. So uh, what do we do to, to, I guess, work against that pressure to include more and more countries in NATO? If I recall correctly, Vladimir Putin at one point was, I want to be a part of the West. We wait, I, you know, this is, this is the kind of, kind of thing that uh, might, might, provide cover for, for problematic countries in that area? 
I think that um, we, it, it's worth reiterating that neither Ukraine nor Georgia are members of NATO. And it's true that some people here in Washington and, and certainly people in Kiev and, and in, uh, in Georgia want to, uh, to be members. Um, but it would be better, it seems to me, that if we, for us to assess on a case-by-case -case basis the actual security interests that, are, that we have in, at stake. And uh, Justin Logan, I thought, wrote a terrific article last year talking about the fact that Ukraine is objectively far more important to the United States than Latvia is, for example, and yet because Latvia is a member of, of NATO, than the Article 5 commitment to defend them against any attack. And so you really are, this is again is the classic case of, you really are going to war to defend a principle and not the objective security interest at stake. Um, it would be so much better if we had assessed going into NATO expansion, which members of Cato, you know, were most outspoken against NATO expansion in the 1990s, if we had had an actual debate before these countries were allowed to join. Um, and I think there is a sense that once they're in, um, the, these, uh, these commitments are so ironclad that we would, we would actually contemplate going to war over, over what is truly a, uh, not a vital national security interest for the United States. What's worrisome, I think, is that many of the advocates of NATO assume that simply the threat of war will deter any enemy or any adversary. And they don't take into account the intensity of interest. That is, for Vladimir Putin and Russia, Georgia and Ukraine matter far more than to the United States. They will be willing to take far greater risks and take far greater chances. And even if you have these countries in NATO, there is a deterrent effect, but it also encourages them to act irresponsibly because they think they have, you have their back. It also ensures this transmission belt of war. That is, if something happens, you really are involved. So there are a lot of potential costs with that. And I think NATO expansion treated membership basically as a social club, which everybody should be in. You know, Marco Rubio, Rubio gave a speech in which he said we have to expand NATO and we need to bring in Montenegro. Literally, he named Montenegro. And the question is, why? Now, Montenegro is a perfectly nice place, but why on earth is that a priority of an administration to bring into NATO? You know, it seems to be almost like Facebook. We have to have more friends. So bring in more countries and we feel better as opposed to actually serving the security interests of America. So what do we spend, uh, the United States, on defense versus these other countries? And, and, and how does that point to your argument that it perhaps subsidizes countries that uh, would otherwise be spending more defending themselves. Well, we we know what we spend on a per capita basis and on a, in real dollar terms and uh, versus our other NATO allies. We, every year, uh, we put out an infographic and a blog post, and and with the help of uh, my colleague Travis Evans, we did it this year using NATO's figures. So there are different sets of numbers in terms of who you know who spends what and how much, but. But our, by our math, the, the average American spends a little over $2,000 every man, woman, and child. And by comparison, um, our, um, our NATO allies spend somewhere between uh, $500 and $300 uh, per person. Um, and I think the reason why is, is fairly straightforward. One, they are less affluent than the United States, some of them considerably less affluent. Um, but mostly they don't feel a need to spend more on defense because they sense that we're, that we're defending them and that's what we say to them. Is essentially it's, it's all about reassuring them, telling them that we have their back and that they therefore don't have to spend more. So every time we publish this infographic and some European friend sends me a nasty email and says, why are you picking on us? And I said, I'm not picking on you. If I were in your position, I would do exactly the same thing. I'm criticizing American policymakers, not European policymakers. You are acting as anyone would. 
individuals and countries are not inclined to pay for things that other people will buy for them. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen in Europe today. And the problem is getting worse. I mean, if you look at the euro crisis, you look at the financial problems they have had, you look at the internal political challenges, the rise of populists, you look at all of these things happening, they are ever less inclined to spend on the military, even in France and Britain. Now, France changed its plans and maintains its spending. Britain went to great efforts to make sure it could still hit 2%. But those are the most important countries militarily in Europe. Even they are struggling to finance. Most of the smaller countries are going down. Even the countries that say they're at risk, Poland, is just reaching 2%. Of the Baltic countries, only Estonia reaches 2%. Latvia and Lithuania are 1%. Yet they are demanding the presence of American troops. You know, it's quite shocking, I think, to say, my goodness, we might be invaded, but we don't want to bother spending on the military. Would you please send help? And that's what we face in Europe. One of the arguments that I hear uh, Justin Logan make rather effectively is that think about what we're actually subsidizing those countries to spend that money on, things right. that broadly aren't necessarily things that Americans value. Right. And I think that's why this, this argument is particularly troubling or should be for those on the right. For conservatives who, who rail against the United States becoming like socialist mm -hmm. Europe, uh, we are in effect subsidizing socialist Europe. We are subsidizing an overly generous uh, welfare state. Uh, and if, you would, if anyone were to propose that here in the United States, they would be appalled. And yet, uh, again, because these countries are freed from their obligation to do what all governments should do, which is to defend their citizens from harm, they have chosen, again, not unreasonably, to spend that money on other things that are not a core function of government. And of course, the United States, conservatives in particular, rail against the welfare state, welfare, the lack of responsibility, yet this is essentially a defense dole for wealthy European countries. Yeah, I'm always struck by that. I've, I've written about that, and I know Doug has as well, that, that we understand how incentives work in the domestic economy. We understand how if a government is willing to, to provide certain things for people, they are not inclined to do it for themselves. And yet we don't, we don't argue that way other than we here at Cato and a few other people do. Uh, uh, and yet conservatives don't seem to appreciate this at all. It's, it's always been very puzzling to me. So given all the things that we've discussed here, what would be a useful, practical way for the United States to reduce its role in NATO, perhaps leave NATO, but at the same time give these countries that have built into their budgets, built into their expectations, uh, the promise of a U.S. umbrella of security? How do we move there? Well, it does take time. We could not do it overnight, and that would be irresponsible and unfair. Uh, I think that the, you start by having an adult conversation with these countries and say, look, again, the reason why we did this when we started this enterprise made a lot of sense for all parties, but it makes less and less sense over time. And I think the, the most important point is that sustaining the uh, public support here in the United States for this mission indefinitely is going to be harder and harder. When people appreciate that the money that we are spending to defend others could be spent here at home. It could be spent by the federal government or more accurately, more, more better even still, is if we were able to keep this money and spend it ourselves, we private citizens. Um, and I think it, it has always been hard to sell this uh, mission to the American people. It only gets harder as uh, there's greater and greater competition for, for those resources. Now you think of uh, you know, $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare, plus a lot of other liabilities. In the future, 
If you go to an assisted living facility and you say, we have to cut Medicare to help the Europeans, it's not going to go over very well. It's an argument the Europeans definitely should understand. I think that the st one starting point is simply no more NATO expansion, is that we're simply not going to bring other countries in, that we have to rethink what NATO is for. I think the second is part of this adult conversation that Chris mentioned, is to talk about an endpoint of military cooperation on shared interests, but that doesn't mean the alliance as it is now. It could be a, a, a NATO without America, a NATO with America as an associated power. It could be a European Union defense for, I mean, there are a lot of options out there. It needs to be phased in, worked in over time, but it's got to start with a serious conversation today. And, and the Europeans simply don't believe that we will ever leave. And they've been told not to think that we will ever leave. Every American president since, since Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower, and Eisenhower complaining yeah. about it, affirmed our commitment yeah. to their defense. And so they do not feel the urgency around creating an alternative, to creating a third way. It was a, there was a terrific opportunity, I think, at the end of the Cold War yes. to create a European defense community that, that, you know, that was actually going to have some capabilities. And the United States uh, really crushed that, that move. Uh, and I think that was incredibly short-sighted. So I want to talk about two more things before we uh, finish here. One is that the United States commitment to NATO certainly purchases it some goodwill, uh, perhaps some uh, negotiating position for uh, issues overseas. Is that fair? Perhaps not. Okay. Uh, um, uh, it, it turns out uh, that uh, people who have studied this uh, find countries support or oppose another country's foreign policies based on their interests at any given time. And, and we see this. We see this in the, in, the, in the several wars that the United States has fought since the end of the Cold War. Some, Europe, some NATO countries have supported us on those conflicts. Others have not. And the reasons why are highly contingent. It depends on domestic factors at a given time. It depends on whether or not they believe that a particular war is in their interest. The most recent case that I think is the important one is Turkey, a NATO member longstanding, opposed the war in Iraq because they perceived correctly, tragically as it turns out, that a war in Iraq would be bad for them. They were right. Uh, and, and so, no, I, I don't – I think it is very, very hard to demonstrate definitively that countries in NATO are more inclined to support the United States than they would otherwise be. Let me throw in here, how has this uh, refugee crisis that is, is now sort of uh, – that is now affecting Europe – how is that going to complicate even the effort to freeze uh, any expansions of NATO in the future? Oh, I think this puts greater domestic pressure on, greater pressure for social services, and greater popular concern about mucking around in the Middle East. All of these will work against European military spending and trying to maintain that. And if the United States is never willing to pull out its troops, the Europeans take no threat seriously. So they have no reason to cooperate, even if we'd berate them to do so. And look, during the Cold War, they built a natural gas pipeline to Europe. They failed consistently to increase military spending as they promised. The French didn't allow us to have overflight to bomb Libya. They supported the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. All of these things, despite it was the Cold War, and we were defending them against an objectively evil regime, even if perhaps it wasn't bent on world conquest. It didn't matter. They, you know, they followed their own policies. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Doug Bandow, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. You can look at our uh, most recent edition of the infographic detailing what the U.S. spends and how it subsidizes our NATO allies, your tax dollars at work. 
at our website, cato.org. It has long been a public policy goal and social ideal to bring black and white children together in the same schools. It is a goal, however, that has not been met. Part of the reason is segregation that occurs when states assign children to schools based solely on zip code. Bartley Danielson, associate professor at North Carolina State University, discussed some of the effects of this segregation at the Cato Institute in September. Let me start out by saying that there are a lot of empty school buildings in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's because in the late 1960s, there were 77,000 children in the Kansas City school system. But this year, there are a little under 17,000. Where do those other 60,000 children go? Well, to understand the answer to that, it helps to know that in the United States, there are about the same number of five to nine-year-olds as zero to four-year-olds. Those are both five-year cohorts. But that's not true in Kansas City. There are actually 15% fewer five to nine-year-olds and zero to four-year-olds. And only 10 miles away in Overland Park, there are 36% more five to nine-year-olds and zero to four-year-olds. You see, when a family has a child reaching age five, they leave Kansas City and head to Overland Park. And over time, that has a disastrous effect on the inner city. Economists call this voting with your feet. It works like this. Politicians draw lines on the ground called school district boundaries. And then people choose their schools by choosing which side of that line to live on. The result is something we call spatial sorting. And what we mean by this is that when people choose their schools, inevitably a wealthier group will end up on one side of the line than the other. So you have on one side of the line higher home prices, higher income levels, and better schools. On the other side of the line, you have exactly the opposite. Now, we got rid of the poll tax in the 1960s. You don't have to pay to vote in elections, but you still have to pay to vote with your feet. And if you can't afford to pay to vote with your feet, you end up on the side of the line with other people who can't afford to vote. So who gets the worst schools? Well, poor people. We know that. But not just the poor, and this is really, really important. Anybody who lives around poor people get those schools. Right? What that means is, if a middle-class family who cares about education as their child approaches five years old, they literally have no choice but to leave the poor behind them. This leads to economic segregation and racial segregation. There's a rich part of town and there's a poor part of town. That's bad for the poor, but it's worse because of something called a spatial mismatch. Poor people want jobs, but jobs aren't being created in the space they live in. They're being created where the middle class and the wealthy are spending their money. So poor people can't get to those jobs. That reduces social mobility. They can't get a job. They can't put their foot on the ladder of success, move into the middle class. Many poor people don't even know anybody in the middle class. Over time, that leads to increased uh, social and economic inequality. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be this way. There are systems that allow people to ignore those lines. So let's take one for example. Right? This is based on research that I've done. Let's look at the tuitioning system in Vermont. Okay? Vermont's had a tuitioning system for 150 years. Basically, there are 200 school districts there. 93 of them don't have a public school. 
Now, what do you do when you don't have a public school? Well, the school district will pay for a child to attend any other public, any other district's public school in the state or any independent school, actually not just in the state, in state or out of the state. So what does this mean at the district level? Well, take the Winhall School District. Right? It's a small district. 1998, it had a poorly performing public school. They were down to only 36 students in the school. They were spending 180% of the state average per child. What they did then was something really remarkable. The town voted to close its public school, to give the building to a new independent, i.e. private school that agreed to take every child that was in the district, okay? and they adopted the tuitioning system. So they just converted from that public system to the tuitioning system. So what happened? Well, today, the students in that school are above the state average in reading, in writing, in arithmetic. The school has grown now from 36 up to 80 students, and they only spend 82% of the state average. They're doing a lot more with a lot less. In addition, you see that family flight rate in Winhall is now uh, plus 14. People are moving to Winhall when their children are from school age. Right? We looked at the effect, we were interested in the economic effects of these school choice, these tuitioning systems across the entire state. So to get a handle on that, we looked at home values. What we find is that those tuitioning homes are worth $24,000 more on average than homes that are assigned to relatively weak schools. Now, what, what can cities learn from this? Well, cities need to be focused on something I'll call city protection and revitalization scholarships. Protection, reducing crime, revitalization, increasing economic activity. All right? Let's just call them CPR scholarships. You don't have to give CPR to everyone, you give CPR to people that are dying. And you don't have to give CPR scholarships everywhere, you need to give it to the places that are dying. And those places are places with concentrated poverty and where families are moving out when their children reach school age. In those areas, all children should get Vermont-style tuitioning. You give it to the poor for social justice reasons. They're burdened with bad schools. You give it to the middle class and even the wealthy they're not there right now. You give it to them in those places if they'll come because the poor desperately need the middle class to be willing to live around them. And they're not right now because they'll get schools that they don't want. So what would CPR scholarships do? Well, they would improve the local economy, fight blight and sprawl, reduce air pollution and CO2 emissions, reduce crime, reduce economic segregation, decrease income inequality, increase social mobility, reduce infrastructure costs, improve public health, and they might save some municipal pensions. The Declaration of Independence marks a turning point in the foundation of government on Earth. The Declaration indeed notes that certain rights are inalienable. Randy Barnett is Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Barnett discussed the fine print of the Declaration at Cato University in July. Now, our, co our country, indeed our people, 
uh, has a discrete starting point, a singular moment in time when it was founded and when its founding was expressly defended. That moment was July 4th, when the Declaration of Independence was approved and announced to the public. Today, while all Americans have heard of the Declaration, all too few have read more than its second sentence. Yet the Declaration shows the natural rights foundation of the American Revolution and provides important information about what the founders believe makes a constitution or government legitimate. The Declaration was considered to be a legal document by which the revolutionaries justified their actions and explained why they were not truly traitors. To justify a revolution, it was not thought to be enough that officials of the government of England, the parliament, or even the sovereign himself had violated the rights of the people. No government is perfect. All governments violate rights. This was well known. So the Americans had to allege more than a mere violation of their rights. They had to allege nothing short of a criminal conspiracy to violate their rights systematically. Hence the famous reference in the Declaration to a long train of abuses and usurpations and the list of such abuses that followed the original, the first two paragraphs. But before this list of particular grievances come two paragraphs succinctly describing the political theory on which the new polity was to be founded. All right, let's take um, the first sentence of the Declaration. Uh, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now this first sentence is often forgotten. It asserts that Americans as a whole not as members of their respective colonies, that's interesting, are a distinct people. And to, to dissolve the political bands revokes the social compact that existed between the Americans and the rest of the people of the British Commonwealth, reinstates the state of nature between Americans and the government of Great Britain, and makes the laws of nature the standard by which this dissolution and whatever government is to follow are judged. So the Americans were now, the state of nature was not entirely hypothetical to them. They were now in a state of nature relative to Great Britain. Maybe not with respect to each other, but relative to Great Britain. These laws of nature are based on the regularities found in nature and are discoverable by reason. As Reverend Eliza Goodrich of Connecticut later explained in an election sermon delivered on the eve of the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention. Election sermons were things that, that ministers gave to public officials before they started their official duties as legislatures or in the case of the Philadelphia Convention as delegates to the convention. Eliza Goodrich, whose son went on to be a congressman, gave such a lecture. It's very, very interesting. I'm going to quote it somewhat extensively because of how he understands natural law and natural rights. It's very, very uh, illuminating to us today. Here's what Goodrich writes. Uh, what he said. Uh, the principles of society are the laws which Almighty God has established in the moral world and made necessary to be observed by mankind in order to promote their true happiness in their transactions and their intercourse. These laws, he said, may be considered as principles in respect of their fixedness and operation, and by knowing them, quote, we discover the rules of conduct which direct mankind to the highest perfection and supreme happiness of their nature. They are as fixed and unchangeable as the laws which operate in the natural world, and that's the part I want to emphasize. 
And then he goes on. Human art, in order to produce certain effects, must conform to the principles and laws which the Almighty has, uh, Creator has established in the natural world. Now, these are natural laws that govern every human endeavor, not just politics. It's something that we forget. They undergird what may be called, and what my good friend George Smith uh, has called, normative disciplines, and by which I mean those bodies of knowledge that guide human conduct, bodies of knowledge that tell us how we ought to act if we wish to achieve our goals. So it's useful to distinguish between descriptive disciplines, sciences that just describe the way things are, economics, uh, biology, geography, physics. Those are disciplines. They're very important. But they don't tell us what to do. They don't guide our conduct. They're descriptive. Then there are normative disciplines, and there are a lot of them. Um, for example, uh, medicine is a normative discipline. If you want to make people well, you should follow these principles. Architecture is a normative discipline. If you want to have a building that functions, you should obey these principles. Um, engineering is a normative discipline. If you want uh, to build a bridge that will stand and not collapse, you should follow these principles. These are all normative disciplines because they tell you how you ought to behave if you want to achieve your goals. They're not merely descriptive. They may be, in some respects, based on descriptive disciplines like sciences, de descriptive sciences. It could be. But in fact, many of these disciplines develop without any scientific knowledge through trial and error and practice. And later on, science may come in and explain, well, what is the basis for these practices? But the practices that can develop independently. So Goodrich, in explaining natural law, um, natural law is the, under, the, is the regularity or order that underpins these normative disciplines, all of them, not just politics, not just law but also uh, agriculture and engineering. Um, Goodrich offers the example himself of agriculture, engineering, and architecture. That's what he uses. Here's what he says. He who neglects the cultivation of the field and the proper time of sowing may not expect a harvest. He who would assist mankind in raising weights and overcoming obstacles depends on certain rules derived from the knowledge of mechanical principles applied to the construction of machines in order to give the most useful effect to the smallest force. And every builder should well understand the best position of firmness and strength when he is about to erect an edifice. What Goodrich's point here is, is to ignore these fundamental principles is nothing short of denying reality, like jumping off a roof, imagining that you can fly. As Goodrich puts it, quote, for he who attempts these things on other principles than those of nature, attempts to make a new world, and his aim will prove absurd and his labor lost. By making a new world, Goodrich means denying the nature of the world that we live in. He concludes, so it's like you're just imagining the world is different than it really is and you're living in that world. But then if you try to do that, things aren't going to work out for you because of the underlying nature of the world we live in. He concludes, no more can mankind be conducted to happiness or civil societies united and enjoy peace and prosperity without observing the moral principles and connections with which the almighty creator has established for the government of the moral world. Now, it may be that these principles may be harder to ascertain than engineering or architectural principles are. Maybe not, though. They could be. They may not be. 
And maybe this may be so because human beings are actually very, very complicated. They're very complex, and partly because we have individual will or desire, we don't operate the way machines do. We don't operate the way billiard balls do. We have our, we're sort of inner, inner, inwardly self-directed, and that makes us more complicated. But the mere existence of complications or controversy does not render these principles non-existent. Nor does the fact that we cannot see, hear, taste, or touch them. Because I know people like to say, well, you know, show me where the natural law is. If you believe in natural law, show me where it is. If you believe in natural rights, show me where they are. I mean, we cannot see, hear, taste, or touch principles of engineering or architecture either. Both sets of principles or laws are humanly constructed concepts that we use to predict and make our way in the world that we know. So when somebody says, well, show me where natural law is, is it in the dirt? And you, as a way of refuting it, I say, well, show me where the principles of medicine are. If, if you open up your body, will you find them there? You wouldn't even think to make that objection, would you? Where are the principles of medicine? Well, they're of human invention. They're of human design. We evolve them. But they're not arbitrary. They're not anything we want. They're based on the body, the way the body works. But they're not found in the body. And the same thing is true with natural laws that govern society. They're based on the way things work. They're just not found in the dirt, just like any other principles are not found in the dirt. India's economic liberalization has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. That transition, which continues today, represents one of the great unsung pieces of good news of the last century. Johan Norberg discussed the rise of India at the Cato Institute in August. Ten years ago, I came back to Sweden from a visit to China and to India, and I wrote an article about the problem that I had on this trip. The problem of making it possible to sit at a Starbucks, sipping a cappuccino, reading The Economist, because that was impossible in both countries, but for different reasons. In China, there were Starbucks cafes. Uh, the economy had begun to open up uh, to a considerable extent, but the political situation had not. So The Economist was banned. It was impossible for me to read it at the same time. In India, I could read The Economist or basically anything, because an open political system with free speech made that possible. But I couldn't do it in a Starbucks because of the extent of regulation, import barriers, and uh, license requirements that made it impossible for Starbucks to operate in India. And I asked the question in that article, where will it be possible for me to do both things at first, uh, for the first time? Um, will it be that the political openness in India will be followed by economic openness, or will it be the economic openness of China resulting in political openness? Well, the results are in. Recently, when I visited India for this documentary, I could sit in a Starbucks, one of many Starbucks now. They expand aggressively in India right now, and I could drink a cappuccino. That's one of many reasons why India is very interesting to me, this combination of democracy and and economic freedom. Now, there's been a lot of hype recently about the new Indian-born CEO of Google, who now joined the ranks of other Indian-born CEOs in businesses like Microsoft and Nokia. They suddenly seem to run Silicon Valley. And that's one aspect of this story. But it also, in a way, just makes us recall that old saying, 
a parliamentarian who asked the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, why is it that Indians seem to succeed everywhere except in their own country, India? Why is that? The moment they go abroad to a more business-friendly place, to a more open economy, they do incredibly well. Why does that not happen in India? Well, we know why, because the Indian, the new Indian government after independence inherited a system of hierarchy and control from the British, and they uh, made it even more suffocating when it came to the economy in many ways. The old British Raj, who told people what to do and when to do it, was replaced by a licensed Raj, who told everybody what to produce, when to produce it, in what quantity, at what price, and what they could and couldn't do. It became one of the worst countries in the world to do business, to trade, to resolve court cases. Despite the political openness, the free speech, the open debate, it seemed to be impossible to have the same kind of experiments and innovation when it came to the economy. And everywhere, as a result, we had bureaucrats and policemen taking bribes. Because when you're in the hands of the bureaucrat, they also can extend and hand and demand for a bribe for you to do anything, basically. So for decades, we talked about the Hindu rate of growth which was supposedly a, a growth rate that's lower than the uh, growth rate of the population. So basically, Indians got poorer and uh, found it impossible to really make a living. And yet, the Indian population during all these years were incredibly inventive and hardworking, and they had to be just to get by. As Gurcharan Das, who is uh, one of the experts in, interviewed in this uh, film puts it, the economy in India grows at night because that is when the government sleeps. Now, the question we pose in this documentary is what happens when the government begins to take a nap once in a while during daytime as well? That's what the show is about because the old system began to crumble in 1991. After decades of stagnation, half the population living in extreme poverty, India ended up in a severe crisis, and foreign exchange reserves had been reduced to such a point that India could barely finance three weeks' worth of imports. At that point, the system was falling apart, and the government began to reform the economy. Um, they abolished many of the regulations, many of the license requirements, reduced many of the import uh, tariffs, and more people got more freedoms in India, and the result already is impressive. The Hindu rate of growth, it turned out, wasn't very Hindu at all. It was just a result of stopping Hindus and other Indians from um, experimenting, innovating, starting businesses, expanding their businesses and trading with the rest of the world. Since 1991, the average growth rate of the Indian incomes has been 7.5% a year. At that rate, you double average incomes every 10 years. According to the World Bank, 140 million people were raised out of poverty in just the three last years. 140 million people in three years. And many are approaching a middle-class lifestyle. The reforms are still very patchy. The speed is slow. This has not happened everywhere, not in all sectors, not at all. But there are now new openings and people who rapidly exploit those openings when that happens. As the great philosopher Leonard Cohen puts it, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in.
The currency of libertarian ideas is often found in appeals to individual rights, but there is also a good case to be made for libertarian thinking based on empirical results. Jeffrey Myron is director of economic studies at the Cato Institute. He made a consequentialist case for libertarianism at Cato University in July. Very basically, libertarianism comes in very, very broad brush term, being somewhat unfair to lots of people. Okay? It comes in two main flavors, which we'll call philosophical and consequential. The philosophical perspective says individuals have rights, usually referred to as natural rights, and it says policy should not infringe those rights, that the single most important or the only goal for policy should be to avoid infringing on natural rights. Of course, almost any policy you can think of does infringe on someone's rights, maybe not to exactly the same degree, maybe some cases a lot of people's rights, in other cases only a few people's rights, maybe different aspects of people's rights depending on the policy, but any policy is going to have to infringe someone's rights because it's going to force people to do some things that they didn't want to do otherwise or wouldn't have done otherwise. Okay? So it follows quite straightforwardly then from the philosophical approach, again, I'm being very, very unfair way oversimplifying, but in broad brush terms, almost all policies, or if not all policies, are inadmissible or undesirable because all policies infringe on people's natural rights. Okay? Consequential perspective okay, says when we're thinking about policies that people have proposed to deal with poverty, to deal with health care, to deal with um, misuse of drugs, to deal with foreign policy issues or whatever, we should ask a whole bunch of questions to try to figure out what we think. We should first ask, what exactly okay, is the problem this is intervention supposed to fix? If you don't have a clear idea of what you're aiming at, you're unlikely to hit your target. We should ask whether the problem is large or small. Okay? If you don't have a clear sense of whether it's a big or large problem, you can't easily design a reasonable response. And maybe small problems you shouldn't try to fix at all, because it's just impossible to imagine that any policy is perfect itself. So a small problem, uh, the treatment is going to be worse than the disease, for sure. We should ask whether private responses, markets and other private mechanisms, can ameliorate this problem or might ameliorate it in future, even if they haven't done so yet. If you're going to propose an intervention, if you really think there's a problem that private forces won't address well, you should ask not just should we do this particular intervention, but what are all the kinds of interventions you could consider? Because there might be a range of negative consequences from different kinds of interventions, so we should focus on the one that seems to generate fewest adverse consequences while trying to address the problem. Then, of course, we have to talk about what the costs are. We have to talk about whether this policy will actually reduce the thing it's trying to reduce or fix the thing it's trying to fix. It's one thing to say drugs are bad and therefore we should prohibit them. You should also ask, does prohibition reduce drug use? If it doesn't, then you're done discussing whether drugs are good, bad, or indifferent because the policy is just not accomplishing its stated goal. And every policy has direct costs for expenditure, all for the people who are employed to implement and enforce the policy and so on. And perhaps most importantly, in some ways summing up uh, consequential libertarianism in two words, Almost all policies have a broad range of unintended consequences okay, that you should think about and want to know about before you're convinced that intervening is better than not intervening. So consequential libertarianism then says that we should intervene if, but only if, the consequences from intervention appear to be better than the consequences from laissez-faire, from not intervening. Okay? And similarly, if there's two possible ways you could intervene, you should choose the one that has the best set of consequences. 
So in libertarian land, there's only one significant federal government policies. It's national defense. Okay, in terms of dollars, persons employed, et cetera, it would swamp everything else. Few other miscellaneous things. If you're going to do some expenditure, you have to raise some revenue, so you collect some taxes. There are a few crimes that are inherently federal crimes, like treason, piracy. Plausibly, we might staff some embassies and consulates around the world, negotiate treaties, and possibly, although libertarians are fairly divided on this, uh, have an office that enforces patents, copyright, and things like that. So if you think about what that means in terms of current federal government departments to eliminate, libertarian land, we'd have no ag, no commerce, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. The ones you would plausibly keep, or at least keep much smaller versions of, because they have to do with things that are inherently reasonable things for a federal government, would be defense, justice, state, and treasury. Okay. All of those do tons of things that libertarians would eliminate, but there are some functions there we would keep. Um, state government is not quite as radically smaller, but still smaller. There would be a um, criminal justice system that in many ways operates similarly to now, okay, except that tons of things which are crimes now, like those against drugs, prostitution, gambling, would not exist. And there may be or a few other state government activities. Libertarians are less dogmatic about government intervention at the state or the local level. So local fire protection, a lot of libertarians government-provided local fire protection, libertarians could sort of live with. Some would advocate for some degree of poverty alleviation via negative income tax, maybe some level of subsidy for education if it's done properly via vouchers. Certainly taking care of roads and other infrastructure are plausible. So here's what we've done so far. Explain what it is. Describe what economy would look like, the country would look like, if we applied those principles. But I haven't really explained why it's right Okay, so now we're going to talk about economics. So what is economics? Okay. Simplest definition is it's a combination of one fact and one assumption. Okay. The fact is that resources are scarce. Okay, two plus two is four. Okay, just the fact that some politicians wants two plus two to be seven can't happen. It's four. So at any moment in time, there's a finite amount of resources to be allocated. You can't do anything about that. You have to live with that constraint. You have maximum amount you can produce over time. So okay, you can't just say, we're going to have enough tomorrow to pay for all the expenditure we want today. There are constraints. And that means that every decision, whether the decisions are smart, stupid, rational, or not, all of those decisions have to face those constraints. Then, you know, less sort of Absolutely, and this is now an assumption rather than a fact, okay? economics assumes that people have goals and they pursue their goals as best they can. Now, I stated that sort of carefully because frequently you see the statement that economists assume everybody's super hyper-rational and maximizing their utility or their profits or whatever all the time. Okay? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe some people have lots of goals besides profits or utility. Maybe they're altruistic. Maybe some firms want to maximize sales or social welfare or the likelihood they get invited to sit in Bob Kraft's skybox at the Patriots games or whatever. Okay? People have all sorts of goals. There's nothing in libertarianism or economics that says people couldn't have a huge range of different kinds of goals. But it says, given their goals, they're going to do some purposeful things to try to accomplish their goals, okay? subject to the constraints that they face. So what that tells us is that people are doing their best to achieve their objectives given the constraints. And therefore, if the constraints change, people's behavior will change. If you're told you have to make the best choices of pizza and donuts, 
given $10, and now someone says you have $20, you can make a different decision. If you're told that the price of something is $10 and now the price is only $2, okay, you may make a different decision because the constraints you face have changed. So people's behavior responds to the constraints. Okay? Standard way economists describe that is incentives matter, or people respond to incentives. It's stunning how often you will see non-economist politicians try to assert otherwise, try to say that somehow in some cases where it's convenient, people aren't going to respond to particular incentives. Drug addicts don't respond to prices kind of thing. Okay? But in fact, standard economics says that incentives matter. And a crucial set of constraints okay, are those from policy interventions. Okay? And so that's where the connection with libertarianism is going to come in. Okay? So what are some examples, just to be clear? Consumers are going to buy less of a good if a tax raises the price of the good. So taxes matter because they change relative prices. People have less, in effect, disposable income, and they're going to substitute away from the good whose price has gone up because of the tax. Firms are going to reconsider where they locate if the taxes on their profits are high in one state or one country relative to some other country. Okay? Firm decisions also respond to incentives because whatever the objective of the firm owners was, if you now say they have to pay more out in taxes, their ability to accomplish their goals, whatever those goals were, has changed, has been reduced, and so they're going to try to respond in some way, shape, or form. Think about the minimum wage as a classic example. All the lefty press on that says, well, we raise the minimum wage, all these minimum wage workers will have higher wages. And it just omits the second part of the analysis says, well, now the firms are making lower profits. And the firms probably don't like that. Indeed, you lefties are the ones who characterize the firms as all being concerned about nothing but profits. Well, then precisely, they're going to do something about the fact they have to pay minimum wages. They're going to hire fewer people or substitute machines for people or change the nature of their production process or pay people under the table or something. So the incentives will matter. A year since the U.S. began fighting the so-called Islamic State in Iraq, which included thousands of airstrikes and thousands of U.S. soldiers on the ground, Congress has yet to actually authorize these actions with a declaration of war. That's a problem, says Democratic U.S. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. He says Congress is the ultimate authority on matters of war and needs to assert its power to declare it. He spoke at the Cato Institute in August. We are today, uh, starting in the Senate, it started last week, the traditional August recess um, in Congress. And Congress is an interesting place because we like to take vacations like other Americans do, but few, uh, few are legally required today to take a vacation. And, and Congress is actually required by law to take an August recess. Um, this was a part of a, a bill called the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970. Uh, we are supposed to take off. In odd-numbered years, the House is adjourned from the first Friday in August until the Tuesday after Labor Day, and that is a legal mandate. There is an exception in the statute. The exception says that the mandated recess, quote, shall not be applicable if on July 31 of such year a state of war exists pursuant to a declaration of war by Congress. And again, the, the, the mandated August break is not applicable if a state of war exists pursuant to declaration of war by Congress. Now, that provision from the 1970 Reorganization Act makes perfect sense. I mean, 
Congress shouldn't go out for a mandatory 30-day vacation when the nation's at war. It's not right that American troops should be putting their lives at risk thousands of miles from home while Congress takes a mandated one month off. The Congress that passed this bill in 1970 during the Vietnam War, they had an expectation about how serious war was and about how Congress, the institution charged with declaring war, would treat such a serious obligation. Well, today we're starting on our one-month adjournment with a nation at war. This Saturday, the 8th of August, marks one year since President Obama began a bombing campaign in northern, in, against the Islamic State in northern Iraq to protect the Kurdish region around Erbil and Mount Sinjar. In the past year, about three to 30, a growing number, now about 3,500 members of the U.S. military have served in Operation Inherent Resolve. Many from Virginia, there's a carrier strike group, the Roosevelt Strike Group that is over deployed in the theater now. Um, about 5,000 airstrikes, as Jean mentioned, and these, uh, these U.S. servicemen and women are carrying out special forces operations, doing airstrikes, training and equipping the Iraqi military, the Kurdish Peshmerga, and then freedom fighters in Syria who are battling against ISIS. We have made major gains. I just came back from Iraq, Kurdistan, Kuwait, uh, Turkey, right on the Syrian border within the last month. And I will tell you this, we have made major gains against ISIL, especially in northern Iraq because of the partnership with the Kurds, and now more recently in northern Syria, also because of the partnership with Syrian Kurds. But the threat that's posed by ISIL definitely continues to spread in the region and beyond. The wars cost $3.2 billion, American taxpayer dollars, about $9.5 million a day. And seven American service members have lost their lives in connection with Operation Inherent Resolve. Recently, if you just you know, go by what's in the paper, we've heard that the administration has plans to expand it in kind of incremental ways, but ways that are pretty important because they're not just expansions of degree, they're really expansions of kind. So the president has now authorized, we see, the ability of the United States to take military action against the Assad regime in Syria if the Syrian military takes steps against the, the opponents, the trained moderates that are fighting ISIL in Syria. And, and that is likely to happen. And then we will be in military conflict with the Syrian military. We're expanding our coordination with Turkey in the mission this morning. First drone strike from, uh, uh, from the Turkish uh, base at Injerlik in Syria was announced. And uh, we're even hearing rumors, although the administration is sort of denying this, rumors are something that I actually think would be a good idea if it was declared, it was part of a declared operation, of a potential humanitarian safe zone inside Syria on the Turkish border that would be jointly protected by Turkish ground forces and American air assets to allow refugees in Syria, whether they're fleeing Bashar al-Assad, ISIL, or cholera, a safe haven to come to since the surrounding countries have been so overrun with refugees, it's difficult for them to take more. We've had testimony, Gene was, uh, was, was optimistic when he said, you know, the president has talked about this maybe being a two or three year engagement. We've had testimony by military leaders in, in terms of the threat of ISIL at hearings where they've said this could go on easily for 10 years. But while the war is expanding and we've got these troops that are risking their lives far from home, and as we prepare to go on the one month vacation anyway, there is a tacit agreement of both parties 
both chambers to avoid, and, and both branches, executive and legislative, to avoid really serious discussion and authorization of this war. The President maintains that he can conduct this war without authorization from Congress. I think the legal claim that I can do this because of the 9-11 authorization is ridiculous. The President waited more than six months after initiating this military action to even send a draft authorization to Congress. And I'll say here, I'm a supporter of the President, and I think the U.S. military should be taking action against ISIL. And I met with President Barzani in Erbil, and the first thing he said to me a month ago was, you tell President Obama thank you. If he had not st started this bombing campaign in August, we wouldn't be here now. There wouldn't be a Kurdistan in northern Iraq now. So this is not about not supporting the need for military action. It is about how military action is supposed to commence. The President waited for six months to send the authorization to Congress, and the White House has not pushed us to do anything with it. But as weird as the President's behavior is in terms of establishing this precedent of executive overreach, which Madison saw, and that's why Madison drafted the War Powers allocation as he did, congressional behavior has been even more unusual. The, though vested with the sole power to declare war pursuant to Article I of the Constitution, Congress has refused to meaningfully debate or vote, debate or vote, not just vote, debate or vote, with respect to this war against the Islamic State. And this is a Congress that is quick to criticize this president for executive action. Oh, you've overreached by doing executive things on immigration. You've overreached by doing executive things in terms of fixes to the Affordable Care Act. But this is one area where, no, we're not going to sue the imperial president over this. Uh, we're not going to criticize the imperial president over this. We're going to give a green light to the imperial president over this. Do it and do not come to us and do not ask us because we don't want to say anything about it. As far as our allies know, as far as ISIL knows, and sadly as far as our troops know, Congress is indifferent to this. If they look at what we've done in a year, the only reasonable conclusion is that we're indifferent to it. I first introduced a resolution to force Congress to authorize this military action war under specific limitations the day after the President on September 10 faced the nation on TV and said we need to be taking military action against ISIL. It went precisely nowhere. Instead, what Congress did was Congress recessed before the midterm elections earlier than they had done since 1960 while a war was underway. Within days after the president went to the nation and said, we're at war and we've got to do this, Congress recessed before the midterm election like seven weeks early. Um, but eventually, the, the resolution I put in did get a hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in December, and it got a, a vote. Now, sadly, it was a partisan vote, but the vote was to authorize military action under limited circumstances. The Republicans all voted against it. It still passed. We were in majority. And they had a reason I can understand. They said, look, we're about to take over the majority in the Senate. We would rather take this issue, take ownership of this issue, and do something with it. It's mid-December. We're not going to vote for it, but we're going to get right to it as soon as January 3rd comes around. Well, January 3rd came around, and then the argument was, well, you know, the president had sent us an authorization, and then the president sent an authorization in mid-February, and then the argument was, well, we got to worry about Iran now. And it's now been six months since the president has sent the authorization to Congress, and again, virtually nothing is done has been done. To try to prod the new Senate under the new majority, Senator Jeff Flake and I introduced a, a War Powers Resolution in June, June 8, two, 10 months from the day of the start of the war. 
And we made it bipartisan and because we wanted to show that we could reach a bipartisan consensus. It, we had talked to all of our colleagues on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We gathered their intel. We didn't, we didn't attempt to solve everyone's concern or problem. We attempted to do a good faith bipartisan version that would be then the subject of amendment, obviously. And we pushed, but in the two months since we've introduced it, we've had a few discussions and closed sessions in the Senate Foreign Relations Commission, but otherwise silence anywhere else outside of, the, uh, of our committee has been silent in the Senate. So what has one year meant? Well, to our institutions, one year of war against the Islamic State has transformed a president who was elected in part because of his early opposition to the Iraq war into an executive war president, uh, maybe a perpetual war president. One year of war against ISIL has stretched the 2001 authorization for use of military force that was passed to defeat the perpetrators of September 11 far beyond its original meaning or intent. In fact, I would argue that the Bush and Obama um, interpretations of the 2001 authorization actually are 180 degrees different than what was intended. There was an authorization that the Bush administration tried to get Congress to pass right after 9-11 that said we give the president the ability to take action against nations or organizations that want to harm the United States. It was a, it was a blanket all-purpose authorization. And even in the aftermath of 9-11, Congress was smart enough to say, hold on a second. We're not going to give you a blanket war authority. We're going to vote that down and only approve the more narrow authorization that says you can take action against the perpetrators of 9-11. But the administration gloss that the Bush administration put on this, that the Obama administration has continued and even expanded, basically has transformed the 9-11 authorization today into exactly what the Congress rejected two days after the 9-11 attacks. One year of war has shown to all that neither Congress nor the President feels any obligation to follow the 1973 War Powers Resolution, which requires that the President cease any unilateral executive-initiated war within 90 days unless Congress votes to approve it. That statute is now completely shredded, uh, and, and no one wants to follow it or even pay attention to it anymore. And finally, one year of war has demonstrated that Congress would rather hide from its constitutional duty to declare war than to have a meaningful debate about whether and how the United States should militarily engage against the Islamic State. Here's an irony. The one-year anniversary of the war against ISIL precisely coincides with this incredibly energetic and vigorous congressional effort to challenge U.S. diplomacy with respect to the Iranian nuclear agreement. What does it say? What does it say about Congress or about our institutions generally when you see congressional indifference to war but energetic congressional desire to challenge diplomacy? What does that say? Strangely, all this is happening while there is a broad bipartisan support for the military action against ISIL. I would venture that three-quarters of members of both houses would believe that the U.S. should be engaged in military action against ISIL under some circumstances, and there's difference on the details, obviously. There's also strong international support against ISIL. Sixty nations are part of the coalition. The American public overwhelmingly favors action against the Islamic State about 65%, and, and the American public even more strongly believes that Congress needs to authorize that action nearly 
So what explains the, the conspiracy of silence for the last year? Well, last month we had a hearing, um, the confirmation hearing for General Joe Dunford, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, to be confirmed as the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Armed Services Committee where I serve. And um, I asked him on behalf of not just Marines, but everybody that he'll lead, whether congressional action to finally authorize this war how would, would be well received by our troops. And his answer to me kind of said it all. Quote, I think what our young men and women need, and it's really all they need to do what we ask them to do, is a sense that what they're doing has a purpose, has meaning, and has the support of the American people. A debate in Congress by the people's elected representatives and a vote to authorize the most solemn act of war is how we tell our troops that what they're doing, what they're risking their lives for, has purpose, has meaning, and has the support of the American people. Otherwise, we're asking them to risk their lives without even bothering to discuss what the mission is, whether the mission is something we support. And, and can there be anything more immoral than that to order troops to risk their lives in support of a military mission that we are unwilling even to discuss? So one year in, Saturday is the anniversary, our service members are doing their jobs, but they're waiting on us to do ours. Um, how about that August recess thing? How about the 30-day the 30 30 day adjournment unless? How can we go on the recess with a war going on? Well, you know, that's actually pretty easy because the part of the statute that creates an exception for the, from the mandatory August recess only applies, quote, if there has been a declaration of war by Congress because we haven't even bothered to debate or vote or authorize this war in the year since it started, we are still entitled by statute to have a 30-day August adjournment. Liberal democracies such as the United States face an acute dilemma in the conduct of foreign relations. Many states around the world are repressive or corrupt to varying degrees. Unfortunately, American national interests require cooperation with such regimes from time to time. But such partnerships have the inherent danger of compromising America's values of democratic governance, civil liberties, and free markets. In their new Cato book, Perilous Partners, authors Ted Galen Carpenter and Malou Innocent provide a strategy for conducting an effective U.S. foreign policy, without betraying fundamental American values. Get your copy today at Cato.org. That'll do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month. <laughs>